seven, I played t-ball in our city's league that we had, and my dad was my coach. And I found out a couple years later that to get the players on your team, they had a large draft process where you would have people pick different players to be on their team. And my dad had the first pick of the draft, and he decided that he was going to pick me to be on his team. Now, what I found out later was that my mom made him pick me first, and probably he could have picked me in the later rounds, way almost at the end of the draft, and we would have been fine because I was not very good at T-ball. Now, our team name was the Georgetown Gutter Makers because the um, gutter making business in town was the one who sponsored our uniforms and everything. And as we started to play, we realized that we just weren't a very good team. Even in T-ball, we just weren't as good as the other teams around. And my baseball career was cut short once the kids were able to start throwing the pitches because I not only couldn't hit anything, but I was starting to get hurt from swinging the bat and hitting myself in the head and things like that. So all that to say, I had a very short baseball career, but I can remember being a teenager and saying, Dad, why would you pick me first? And he said, well, it's because I love you. Now, he also said it's because Mom made him pick me first in the draft and he wouldn't be able to go home if I wasn't on his team. But it got me thinking, what will a father do for his son? Fathers are motivated to do extraordinary things for their children. Growing up and even now, I knew that my dad would do anything for me that he could possibly do because of his love. We ended our sermon last week considering what God the Father has done for his son, Jesus Christ. In verse 6, he calls him the beloved. And God the Father loves Christ, but he also sent Christ to the world to die For our sins. And he didn't do this out of hatred, but he did this out of love for us. And so as we transition now in this long sentence in Greek, verses 3 through 14, we get to verse 7 and we start thinking about Christ the Son and his relationship in the Trinity. And you need to understand yes, all three are one God that's in three persons and they do different things. God the Father, from more of the planning and divine ordinance decree side, he planned our salvation. It's his will that is being done. Christ was sent for our salvation. He died on the cross. Next week we'll see the Holy Spirit seals us so that we can have an eternal security in him. We want to see this morning that because of what Christ has done for us, there's two different spiritual blessings that we have. And their redemption and inheritance. We're going to look at both of those in depth this morning. Now, I said last week that these spiritual blessings in Ephesians, there's many of them. There's a handout last week that had a whole long list of what they are. They're almost like Christmas presents. And as a kid on Christmas, you open up your presents and you look at it. Maybe you're really excited about it or maybe it's just clothes and you throw it away. You throw it over your shoulder. But as you look at your gift, you think, what am I going to do with this? How am I going to use this? And you almost take a step back. You look at all the things that you've received and you say, I've been blessed. And that's what we're doing in Ephesians. We're looking at these spiritual blessings one by one. Then we take a step back and we praise God for what he's done in our lives. Kind of reminds me of a couple months ago when Alicia and I got married. We had a wedding registry. We both put things on there that we thought would be useful. Now, she put a lot more on there than I did because she knows what she knew what we would need 
in the house. And I've got to be honest, some of you got us some kitchen utensils and different kitchen appliances and tools. I have no idea how some of them work. After five months of being married, I've not used them, but she has. I can say I've been blessed by her cooking, and I think we all have as well, because she knows what to do with each one of those things. It's the same way with our spiritual blessings. We're looking at them. We're getting in depth on each one of them. Then we're saying, how can we use this in our lives? And that's what Ephesians is all about. So what we want to see this morning is that we should worship Jesus Christ for his work of salvation. Verses 3 to verse 14, all of this is trying to show us that God is worthy to be praised for what he's done in our life. So we see this morning... Jesus Christ and what he's given to us in salvation. We specifically want to look at his redemption and then the inheritance that we are given. So look at verse 6 with me because this leads us into our text. It says, To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So we're praising God the Father in verse 6 for his grace that he's given to us. Then there's that phrase, in the beloved. Now, there's many people called beloved in Scripture, but we can most assuredly know this refers to Christ. And now what Paul's doing in verse 7, in him, refers back to Jesus. He's going to show us what Jesus Christ has done for us in our salvation. And it says, in him we have redemption. And that word is going to describe what he's doing in verses 7 through verse 10. What does redemption mean? It means to ransom someone, to buy someone back, to free someone from a captive condition. When you think about slavery and redemption, those two words go together. But when you think about slavery in Scripture, you think about the children of Israel in Egypt. They were slaves for a couple hundred years, and then God went and rescued them through Moses. If you know the story of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 6, God appears to Moses in the burning bush. And Moses says, what am I going to tell these people that are there? They probably hate me because I grew up in Pharaoh's household. What will I say to the Israelites? And then in verse 6 of chapter 6, he says, Say it therefore to the people, I am the Lord. Moses is like, what do I call you? He says, call me I am Yahweh. He's self-existing. And then it says, and I will bring you from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And then he uses this word, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Even from the Old Testament, we see that God is a redeeming God. He saves his people. And so Paul would have this in mind, this idea of redemption. He would also think about Roman slavery as well. We talked about it last week in terms of adoption. A son, or usually a son would be adopted, who was not a biological son of a Roman citizen, but he would be sold to this person three times by his biological father. And on the third time, the natural father gave up his rights to the son, and the new father could then adopt him as his own. So Paul would have this slavery idea in mind, the idea of buying back a slave as well. So in the Ephesians here, in him you have redemption. Their minds immediately go to this Roman idea of slavery and being bought from slavery. Now what's interesting 
about this use of redemption is that we have to look at both how we're being bought and what we're being bought from in this present act of redemption. So he says, in him we have redemption through his blood. That's the means by which we've been redeemed. Now, maybe you're like me. I don't like blood. I don't like giving blood. I don't like having blood drawn. But what's the importance of blood in Scripture? Well, in the Old Testament, we know that blood was needed for a sacrifice. When they would sacrifice animals to God, they couldn't just strangle them. It needed to have spilt blood. All right? So it needed to be a bloody sacrifice. In Isaiah chapter 53, we are told that the sacrifice of Christ would be bloody. He was pierced for our transgressions. This goes all the way back to the animal sacrifices from the Old Testament. So the fact that Christ spilled blood on the cross is important. There's also a connection in Scripture between the idea of blood and life. For something to have blood means that it's alive. When your heart stops beating... It's not pumping blood anymore. You're not alive. So both his blood is being emphasized, but also the fact that Christ gave his life for us. We have redemption in Christ because of his blood, because of his life. How did Christ redeem us through his life? Well, yes, he gave his life for us. We also know that in his life, he kept the law perfectly. Christ never sinned, not even once. He was tempted by sin, but we know he never sinned. We see that throughout Scripture. It's something that we couldn't do. Many of you are parents in the room. I'm sure you would give your life for your child. But in this situation, because you're sinful, you could not give your life like Christ gave his life for us. So we see how it's accomplished through his blood. But then we also see the forgiveness of our trespasses. Now, forgiveness and redemption are connected. Forgiveness is renaming it. It's another idea that tells us about redemption. And then we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. What does forgiveness mean? It means to not hold something against someone, right? To release them is the actual lexical form of it. To release someone of a obligation, One definition that I like says forgiveness is saying that I'm not going to hold your offense against you and I'm not going to talk about it to others, to God and to myself. Why do we need forgiveness? It says the forgiveness of our trespasses. It's an interesting word that Paul uses. He could have just used the word sins, but he uses a more specific word here. That is trespasses. It's an active sin, knowing that something is wrong and that you need forgiven. We see this sometimes in kids. You've all known kids who maybe they've done something wrong because they just didn't know about it. They took something or they played with something they shouldn't have. They touched the hot stove and they just didn't know it was wrong. And so you recorrect them. You try to set them on the right path, tell them not to do that. But we all know the look on a child's face when they know something is wrong and then they do it anyways. And sometimes they just have this little smile on their face. They're going to see if you're going to get after them for doing it. That's the difference here. Sometimes we have sins. We just don't know that they're wrong. They're sins of ignorance is what scripture would call them. But all of us at some point have sinned knowing it was wrong. 
Now, maybe you say, hey, when I was sinful, I was young. Maybe you didn't know that God existed. You didn't believe in God. You say, how did I know that I was breaking God's law? And maybe at that point you didn't. But all of us at some point in our life have sinned knowing it was the wrong thing to do. There is an aspect of morality, I think, in each one of us that can discern what is right and wrong. Now, an unbeliever has that sense of morality calloused over time, as Scripture tells us. We still know when things are wrong. Now, what I love about working with children is when they've done something wrong and their parents make them apologize to you because you have two different extremes. You have one child who is just totally broken over what they've done and they're crying and they're upset and they promise they'll never do it again. Whether they keep that promise or not doesn't matter at that point. You just know that they're remorseful over it. And then you have another child who they cross their arms and they look real upset and they say, I'm sorry. And you can just tell that they're not serious about it. God gives us forgiveness through the redemption that Christ has given us. And the only way that we can receive that redemption is by confessing our sins. That word means to say the same thing about humbly acknowledging that we're sinful, not with crossed arms, but with a heart that says, God, I know I've sinned against heaven and against you, just like the prodigal son. And then what does God do? He releases us. Now look at that last phrase here. According to the riches of his grace. Why does Christ redeem us? Why did God save us? It's because of his grace. We're going to see this word all throughout Ephesians. People call it God's riches at Christ's expense. Unmerited favor. Giving you something you don't deserve. So why does God save us? It's because of his grace. Because it's abundant. You have riches. This word riches means to have an overabundance. You're wealthy. You have so much money you don't know what to do with it. Is anybody here like that? You've just got so much money you have no idea what to do with it. I've got a couple suggestions for you on what you could do with that. God's grace is just pouring out. It's so abundant and we're going to see it throughout Ephesians. God saves us because he is a gracious God. In that next verse, in verse 8, it says, which he lavished upon us. That verb means to pour out on someone in overabundance. You're just fully giving them this blessing. This idea of lavishing makes me think of when you're seasoning something or you're putting sauce on something. Now, I asked my wife the other day, what's something that I just put out in overabundance, like a sauce or a spice? And she said, salt. And I have an issue with salt. Sometimes I can know that something is perfectly salted, and I'll just pour it on there even more. Sometimes with coffee creamer, it's already ready to go, and I just pour almost half of the bottle into my coffee. That's the idea here, that God is just lavishing something on us. It says, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. These two words show us both the intricacy of God's plan, wisdom and insight. It goes back to the Proverbs. Proverbs tells us about wisdom and understanding. So yes, the way that Christ redeemed us was done in wisdom, but these two phrases actually point us to something else in the text. 
it points us to verse 9. It says, making known to us the mystery of his will. That word making known means to reveal, to disclose information, to unveil something. And what is he revealing? It's the mystery. And the word mystery in Greek is mysterion. It's a common word in Greek that refers not only to different pagan and cultic mysteries, and that's the background that the Ephesians would have, this idea of a mystery, higher knowledge that was part of their religion. But Paul uses it in the epistles to talk about the gospel, to talk about the disclosing of the gospel to humanity, both Jews and Gentiles. We actually see the same word used just the Hebrew iteration of it in Daniel chapter 2. Go ahead and turn back there with me for a moment to the book of Daniel. Daniel was a Jewish prophet. He was young, but he was taken captive by the Babylonians after the fall of Judah. So you're Daniel. You're a young man living in this new nation, and there's just paganism all around you. And in chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And he can't understand what this dream is. It's this giant statue and its legs and its belly and its head are all made out of these different substances. He just can't figure out what's going on. Have you ever had a dream where you just say, I have no idea what that was about. And I'm just going to move on. Well, he's just really burdened by this dream. And so he calls all of his magicians and interpreters and sorcerers, and he says, I want you to tell me the interpretation of the dream. And they either couldn't figure it out or they didn't give him an answer that was satisfactory. So he goes to Daniel, and look at verse 19 of chapter 2. It says, the mystery, that same idea. Now, it's a different Hebrew word, but when translated into Greek, it's mysterion, the same word used here in Ephesians. The mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. That same idea of wisdom is attributed to the understanding of this mystery. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God, my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. I want us to understand something about this. Who is revealing this mystery to Daniel? It's God. It's clearly God. So the idea of a mystery in Scripture is something that you can only understand by God revealing it to you. Look at verse 30 of chapter 2. He's telling Nebuchadnezzar why he can understand this dream. He says, But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. God is the one revealing this mystery to Daniel, and now Daniel will interpret it to the king. But we don't have time to go through what the interpretation is, but it's a plan that God has for the coming ages. And so now we come to this mystery used in Ephesians, 
And he's not only going to talk about it here, he's going to talk about it in chapter 3 as well. And we'll get into it in more depth there, but just to give a summary, I believe it is God's inclusion of both the Jews and Gentiles in salvation, something that was unknown in the Old Testament, how God is going to do that, and now it's known to us in Christ. This is the mystery. And Paul says it's the mystery of his will. It's God's will. He's planned this out to happen. And it's done in what? Wisdom and insight. We see that over and over again in Proverbs. Wisdom and understanding. What is wisdom? People would call it practical knowledge or the practical use of knowledge. Not only knowing the right information, but knowing how to use it as well. I can know how to cook a meal. I can know the recipe or the instructions, but I could still do a terrible job of cooking it because I don't know how to apply that information in my cooking. What we see here is that God's plan is revealed to us and it's done in the right way. It's done in wisdom. We just sang a song. What is that song called? Come behold the wondrous mystery, the gospel Christ dying on the cross for our sins. This is the mystery of God that Paul is revealing to uh, that Paul is explaining to us. It says according to his purpose. Now, some of your translations might say according to his good pleasure, and I actually think that's a better translation of this word. We're going to see the purpose of God later in chapter 1, but a better translation would be his good pleasure. Why does God reveal this to us? Because he wants to. You realize that God doesn't have to tell us why he does anything. He's God. He doesn't answer to anyone. Romans 11. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? There's some things I don't think God can explain to us because we just wouldn't comprehend them. How many of us understand the Trinity and all its complexities and all the ways that it works? How many, how many of us understand both God's sovereignty and human responsibility and how they're put together? So God doesn't have to reveal this to us, but why does he? According to his good pleasure. Then we get to verse 10, or the end of verse 9, sorry. Which he set forth in Christ. That word set forth means to plan, to design. This is God who's working. Yes, he's planning this out by his will, but he designed it in Christ. What is Christ doing He is the way that this plan is executed. He is the one who would come to the earth. He is the one who would die for sins. We see this designing nature of God that makes known to us the mystery of his will. And this all happens through what Christ has done for us. This plan is further described in verse 10. It says, as a plan for the fullness of time. That idea of plan is another Greek word, and it has the idea of household expectations. If you had a household in those days, you wouldn't just have a mother, a father, children. You would have slaves. You would have managers. And that word manager is where this Greek word comes from. Managing a house. It's an administration. Now, when Alicia and I were doing our premarital counseling, We had to do a worksheet on household expectations. Who was going to do the dishes? Who was going to take out the trash? Who was going to mow the lawn? And there was a thought, I think both of us would say this, 
maybe an optimism where we both thought we would do maybe more than we would actually do. For example, I said I was going to help with the laundry at that point. And then she watched me fold some clothes and she said, it's okay, I can do the laundry. (laughs) She said that she would help mow the lawn. And there came a point where I said, I'll just work on mowing the lawn, you can finish the laundry. So there's an expectation in how the household's going to be managed. We both think we're going to do all these things. And then there's a reality. You realize, I'm not very good at doing the laundry. Maybe she's not as good at the yard work. This idea of plan shows us how God has planned all of time. Do you realize that the gospel happens through Christ in the gospels, through his life and death, But it's actually been planned out through the entire message of Scripture. All the way back to Genesis 3, Christ is promised to come and to save us from our sins. We see the plan of God from Genesis to Revelation. Then we see another phrase as a plan of God for the fullness of time. And this is a really interesting phrase often used with prophecy talking about not only Christ fulfilling prophecy now, the prophecies of the Old Testament, but a future fulfillment when Christ comes and rules and reigns on the earth. The plan of God is not only our salvation, but it is the reconciliation of the whole world. That's why after that phrase, it says, as a plan of God for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him. Now, what does that mean? To unite all things in him. Does that mean everyone is going to be saved? I don't think that's quite what it's getting at. Again, we go back to Genesis. And we see God created the heavens and the earth. You go all the way back to Genesis 1, 28. And it says, And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens, and every living thing on the earth. Who is given dominion over the earth in that passage? We are. Humans. Adam is told to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Not only that, have dominion over it. But did Adam do a very good job? Well, he named the animals. He got things going. But he sinned. And through Adam's sin, even though he was made in the image of God... He was never going to be a perfect manager of the earth. Has the earth ever had a perfect earthly king? The answer is no. Time and time again, no matter what you think about the upcoming election, which candidate is your candidate of choice that's going to fix America and help the world, and they're going to do all these things to make everything perfect, it's not going to be perfect. And why is that? It's because of sin. So the story of the Bible is not only a story of our redemption, but it is a story of all of creation waiting for a future king who would come. And when Christ came, that's what the Israelites expected. He's going to come and he's going to overthrow Roman rule. He's going to set up a new kingdom here on earth right now. But he didn't do that, did he? He came as a baby. He came humble. He didn't overthrow the Romans. He came and he died for sin. But we know that Christ is coming again. He's coming at one point, and when he comes, he will physically rule and reign here on the earth. 
and the fullness of time. So we see the fullness of time is not only Christ fulfilling prophecy here, but it can also stretch all the way to the end of time when Christ rules and reigns on the earth. This is all part of the plan of God. It says to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That doesn't mean that everyone will be saved, but there will be a day where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And if you're still waiting for a perfect politician, that will never happen. But you can wait for a perfect king because that is coming in Jesus. So we unpack this spiritual blessing being accomplished for us through Christ. And we want to think about redemption, what Christ is doing here in verses 7 through 10. And we've said this is what it is. Then how do we use it in our lives? I would say, first of all, praise Christ for redemption. God planned it, yes. And we see an emphasis on the plan of God. But Christ died for it. That's why we sing songs about the gospel. This is the price of our redemption. See the Father's plan unfold. We sing praises to God, both God the Father for his plan, but Christ the Son for his death on the cross for our redemption. How should we praise Christ? How should we praise him for his death? Think about Revelation chapter 5. All of the things in heaven, the angels, the elders, the living creatures, are falling down before the Lamb who was slain for sin. So I just encourage you, if you feel like you can't worship Christ fully now, there will be a day where that's all you'll want to do, is worship him for what he's done for us. Secondly, live in a redeemed identity. Because of what Christ has done in redemption, you have a new identity in Christ. And this is what Paul is trying to show us in Ephesians. Some of us today are frustrated with our jobs. Maybe we're frustrated with our marriages or our children or medical conditions that are plaguing us or some kind of family issue. And sometimes we grow so frustrated in those things because for so long we found our identity in those things. And we've said, I'm only a husband or a wife or I'm only this type of employee or I'm only this family member. And we don't find our identity in Christ. One of the things that my wife and I have talked about that's interesting, we were both single for a season of time before we were married, not forever. And when we were single, we thought marriage is going to fix everything. And now I love my wife and my wife loves me, but I think we would both testify marriage hasn't fixed everything. If anything, sometimes it causes more issues that we have to work through. And we love being married and we love each other, but there's nothing that's going to fix all of your problems. And so I can't just find my identity in being married. What we can find our identity in is Christ and his redemption. And what does that look like? When life is hard and circumstances are piling on you like they will, you stop and you say, you know what? Today, I'm redeemed. I've been saved by Christ. I've been bought back. I'm no longer a slave to sin. I am a child of God. And no matter what else goes wrong today, I can be redeemed and I can live in my identity in him. We find our identity in Christ and in our redemption. And then with that, we look forward to a future redeemed identity knowing that God saved us from sin, but there will be a day when there's no sin here on the earth where you can 
live under Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. We see that our identity is part of God's larger plan for the world. So Paul shows us redemption. He also shows us inheritance. Look at verse 11 with me. Notice that phrase, in him. Who's it referring to? Christ. It's the second content of what he's going to explain. In him we have obtained an inheritance. What is an inheritance? What does it mean? Well, usually it's something that you receive when someone dies. They leave you something through their will. Maybe it's an object. If you go into my office, I have a little eagle cane in the back. My grandpa left that to me after he died. Sometimes it's a large sum of money. Now, my parents have already told me, don't be expecting a large sum of money when we die because we don't have that. Inheritance is something you usually receive when someone dies. Paul says that in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him. There's that word again, predestined, to plan something out, to set something's destiny beforehand. So the inheritance that we have in Christ was planned out when? Before time. Paul says before the foundation of the world. It's something that we've always had set in motion. And again, it says according to the purpose of him. Here it does actually mean purpose. His intention, God's will, what he wanted to see happen. And it says, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So we have an inheritance through Christ. We could not have this if it wasn't for Christ's death. We have an inheritance through Christ according to the purpose of God. Now he describes God in an interesting way. It's the God who works. He's working something together. God not only plans, but then he sees everything through. He says, he who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That idea of counsel is interesting. What do you do when you get counseling? Someone gives you advice on what you should do, right? You have a problem. You have a question. You go to someone and they give you counseling. They tell you what you should do. So does God go to someone for counseling? Well, no. Again, Romans 11, who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor. Some people think this refers to the divine counsel, which I don't have time to get into, but they pretty much think it's a body of divine beings who God runs everything by. I don't think that's true. When you think about counseling, though, you're thinking something through. My wife tells me that I like to think out loud. I like to talk things through, and that's how I come to understand something. In fact, sometimes when I'm writing my sermons, I will just say things and see if they make sense. When I was subbing it and the kids at school saw me do that, they thought I was crazy because I thought I was talking to myself because I would just talk things out. So this idea of counsel, I don't think means that God is asking someone for advice, but it means it is a well-thought-out plan. When you want to get advice from someone, you want to make sure that you're thinking the right way. And so this is a well-developed, well-intentioned plan of God. So what God is doing in his will is perfect. Now, what is this inheritance that we have? We know it's been planned. We know it's been set in effect for us through his purpose. But what is this inheritance 
that we have through Christ. Well, 1 Peter 1.4 says that we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. And the problem is we can't fully define it because we don't know all the different aspects of it that are going to be in heaven. We know we'll be saved. We know we'll be with Christ. We know that we will receive crowns in heaven. We don't know what that is going to be like. But I'm going to encourage you this morning that I don't think Paul's point is the contents of our inheritance, the things we're going to receive, but it's the identity of our inheritance, that we are children of God, that God has left us these things in Christ, that we have spiritual blessings. Sometimes when you receive something, like when I received that cane from my grandpa, it wasn't necessarily that I needed a cane, at least not yet, hopefully. But it meant a lot to me that I could have that from him. And it reminded me that he loved me as his grandchild. We see the same thing with our inheritance with God. We don't fully comprehend what it is, but we know it's part of our identity as his sons and daughters. We see this plan of our inheritance in verse 11. And then lastly, notice the purpose in verse 12. So that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. We are described in a unique way here. The first to hope in Christ. And Paul uses a first person pronoun, we. He's talking about himself here now. And some people think, think that he's talking about his Jewish identity. The Jews were first to hope in Christ. They were the first ones saved. Even in Acts we see that. The gospel went to the Jews first and then the Gentiles. So this is only talking about Jewish people. And I would say no. I would say first here doesn't necessarily have the idea of a time period, but it has more of an idea of importance. Go to Colossians chapter 1. Think about verse 15. Christ is the firstborn of all creation. Do any of us believe that Christ was created first or that he was created? No. But first there has an idea of importance. He is above all creation. He is set before all creation. He's more important than it. So here when it says, we who are the first to hope in Christ, I don't think it means that there's a time aspect to it, but it shows the importance of it. We are in first place, as you might call it. Now, what's our purpose in this? It says, we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of of his glory. What does that mean? Does that just mean you should worship God and give him praise? Well, no, but it's an identity that we have in him. It's not just something we do. It's something that we are. He's done all these things. It's the inheritance he's given us, our redemption, all of this happens so that through our lives, we can praise and glorify him. Meaning this, it's not an option. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are to glorify him. And at all times, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, whatever, if you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And the truth is, our life is going to be lived, either glorifying God or not. And the question is, are we doing a good job of that? Praising God, giving him glory is not just something we do here on Sundays. It's something you do in your whole life. So you ask yourself the question this morning, 
Am I praising God like I should by how I live? When others think of me, is it something that gives God glory? You can think about this in a lot of ways. Think about suffering for a second. When someone sees you go through a hard time, do, are you bitter? Do they see someone who's just grumpy, who's upset with God about the circumstances he's put you in? Or is your life a testimony to others that points them to a God who is greater than you? In all aspects of your life, Paul says you are to be to the praise of his glory. That's your identity. That's the starting place. That doesn't mean you, try, you don't try to be a good husband or a good wife or a good father or a good employee. But we have to understand that all those things need to start with being a good Christian, being a good child of God. And we find our identity in that, and it affects everything else in our lives. How do we unpack our inheritance and then how do we use it? First of all, praise Christ. Recognize that he was sacrificed on the cross so that we could be saved. I said last week, imagine being a father sending your son to the earth to die for sin and then having to turn your face away like scripture tells us. But imagine being God's son in Jesus Christ. I don't know if you're like me. I never wanted to disappoint my parents. But imagine having your father turn his face away from you. That's what Christ has done for us in salvation. So we praise him for that, not just in music or on Sundays, but through our whole life and the way we live. And then lastly, hope for the eternal. We need to understand that as part of our identity in Christ, we don't just have to live for the things of this world. We don't have to preoccupy ourselves with earthly Things. Paul in Colossians says, set your minds on things above, not things on the earth. We need to realize that the time that we spend here on earth is short. A few short decades, a hundred years if you're Norma Jean, a short amount of time in comparison to what we will do with all of eternity. Yet we don't think about eternity a lot. We often spend our time focusing on earthly things. Even in preaching, you hear people talk about our relationships, what we do here on earth. But we don't think a lot about heaven. And why is that? Well, it's something that we can't see. My wife says, if I want you to remember something, I have to put it right in front of you. In fact, as we were packing the other day to leave, she gave me a list. And she checked three or four times to make sure that I was packing everything that was on the list. Sometimes we don't think about heaven because it's not in front of us. We can't see it. But friends, it is a more real hope that we have than anything on this earth. We don't know what heaven will be like fully, but I do think there will be a part of us when we get to heaven that will realize how foolish we were for living of the thing for the things of the world. Verses 7 through 12 of chapter 1 show us the work of Christ to give us our redemption, and to give us our inheritance as believers. As a response to that, we should both praise God for what he's done, God the Father and God the Son here, and we should live in a new identity. As we close this morning, instead of having a conclusion with application questions or points, I thought this sermon ties pretty well into communion. 
talking about the death of Christ, talking about our redemption in Him, brings us to the Lord's table. And what do we do in communion? We remember what Christ has done for us on the cross. So I want you to think this morning about the spiritual blessings that we have in redemption and our inheritance. And think about what Christ has done to give us those things. Go to Matthew chapter 26 for a moment. In Matthew 26, we see Christ in the moments before he's arrested and killed on the cross. And we often think about Christ's death as something that's already happened, and it has. We don't think about what it would be like for Christ in the moments before he went to the cross. And as he prays to the Father in verse 37, it says, He began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but your will. In those moments, as we think about Christ before he goes to the cross, he knew what he was going to suffer. He knew not only the physical pain of the cross, not only the mocking and the shame that he would endure, but he would take on our sin debt, and he would feel the rejection of God the Father. And you think about what kept Christ on that mission. What caused him to still be committed to dying on the cross for us? And a lot of us would say his love, right? He loved us. That's why he did it. But we see here at the end, he says, not my will, but your will be done. It wasn't just love for us, but it was a commitment to do the will of the Father. The fact that God has a plan that's bigger than us that involved his son Jesus Christ dying on the cross for sin. And friends, part of that plan this morning is our redemption. That we've been redeemed and we have a new identity in him. Part of that plan is our inheritance. Christ died so that you could be called a son or daughter of God, so that you could spend eternity with him in heaven, having a spiritual inheritance. So as we think about the cross this morning, as we reflect on communion, Think about all the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ, but also what he did on the cross so that we could receive those blessings.